Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome back once again to another episode of the Swift Half with Snowden with me, Christopher Snowden. Hope you're well. Um, I am very excited to be joined this week by the author and spectator columnist, Lionel Schreiber. I enjoy her column um, every uh, every fortnight, I think it is, in, in The Spectator. Um, it gets involved with lots of very interesting and often controversial issues. Lionel, hi, how are you doing? Thank you for joining us. I'm great and it's a pleasure. Um, I don't know where to start. As I say, you, you touch on all sorts of different um, issues in The Spectator. I, I, I wonder, do you feel you've some, in some way been sort of dragged into these culture wars that everyone keeps talking about? I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was, you got in trouble for wearing a sombrero um, on the basis of cultural appropriation and so on. And since then, you seem in, in, in many ways a kind of an unlikely person to be um, you know, dragged into all this kind of stuff. Um, is it because you've changed or has the world changed? I don't think I've changed. The world has certainly changed. I wouldn't categorize myself as having been dragged into anything. I mean, I have only myself to blame for this. Uh, I'm just interested in a lot of matters. I've always been a big newspaper reader. I keep up with the news. I shout at the television a lot. (laughs) Um, it's just a matter of having been given the opportunity. So, uh, you know, Fraser Nelson offered me the Spectator column in 2017. That would have been a year after I, uh, you know, disgraced myself by wearing a hat. <laughs> and, um, and I said, yes, you know, why not? It's a great forum and I enjoy the magazine. So, uh, no, I mean, I haven't been unwillingly drafted. Uh, and I have some appreciation for the fact that I have plenty of fiction writing colleagues who don't want to have anything to do with political commentary, who just want to work on their books and be left alone. And so I don't, I don't regard uh, being a participant in public discourse as a requirement of my occupation. It's, it's my choice. Absolutely. And one of the things you've um, written quite a bit about is, is free speech, which makes sense, of course, in, in your profession. Um, and I, I know you've written about uh, Dave Chappelle a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered if I could get your, uh, your thoughts on the fairly recent Jimmy Carr joke that um, Nadine Doris has said might cause her to uh, start censoring YouTube. Uh, oh, sorry, not YouTube, Netflix, if she gets the chance. Um, I mean, is, are your listeners familiar with the joke? Uh, probably. I think every, most people are by now. I should explain. This is the, the uh, Holocaust joke. Sometimes people put the word joke in uh, italics and explain that they don't think it's funny but the gist of the joke is he uh, says that a lot of people don't realize 
that uh, lots of uh, gypsies were killed in the concentration camps uh, and leaves a pause, misdirection, and then says that's because uh, people uh, never want to talk about the positives. So that's the joke, whether you find it funny or not. I thought the joke know. was that, that that's the upside of the Holocaust. Right, that was it, yeah. He says that people, right. don't, talk, they, people don't talk about the, uh, the gypsies being killed because people never want to talk about the positives. My, right. my delivery is not as good as Kyle's, right. hence, hence our right. different occupations. You buried the... Uh, oh, sorry, there you go. You buried the punchline. Um, I, look, it's a tasteless joke. Okay. Uh, it's only moderately funny, like not super funny. And a lot of jokes get uh, criticized as being horrific, partly because they're not funny enough. And by contrast, you know, J Dave Chappelle is hilarious. So he, he is tasteless beyond belief, but he's got good comic judgment. And that's one way you get away with it. The other way you get away with it is being black. It's useful. <laughs> and, and by the way, I should say that I'm, I'm big on that. I want black comedians to take advantage of their implicit permission as much as possible. That's some of the last comedy out there that's genuinely funny. So please go to town. Um, you know, Carr doesn't, doesn't have that racial permission. I'm not big on banning anything um, unless it's absolutely necessary. And least of all, do I want to ban tastelessness or poorly executed humor? I mean, uh, we can just say, well, that's tasteless and move on. We don't have to have some kind of paroxysm. It's not that important. Yeah, well, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I, I found it kind of weird that people were debating whether it was funny or not. It certainly wasn't funny the way I told it. Um, and maybe I should be banned for it. But it, it seems to me irrelevant. You know, I mean, this is it's not a matter of you know, scorecard for humor. It's a matter of free speech. And there are quite a few sick comedians if you want to call them that and jimmy carr has absolutely made a name for himself as, as being a, a teller of sick jokes the, the the show was called his dark material um personally i didn't find it very funny in the context of like a tweet which is how i saw it i just saw it clipped out i'll probably go off and watch the entire thing on netflix now which is i guess an unintended consequence of this uh palaver well, that's really um, punishing yourself <laughs> maybe, maybe it'd be it'd be funnier in um in context, I do think generally speaking, it's, it's the, the, the issue really, it's, it's a legal one, it's a free yeah. speech one, and we have to extend free speech to rubbish comedians and to off-color jokes. I mean, because if you say you can only tell a joke that's funny, then that's a subjective judgment and and completely unenforceable or or its enforcement would be a free speech nightmare and you know you you cannot i don't want special protections you know like the of the sort that the british government embraces to be imposed on artists and comedians i don't believe in in these so-called protective protected characteristics full stop uh, I'm very attached to the uh, American concept of equal treatment under the law. So and that and I think that th that's a 
cornerstone of of democratic due process that that you don't pass laws that specially apply to one group and not another and and Britain has has run roughshod over that principle so you know I just a, a, across the board we have to have permission to be bad at our jobs and to make remarks that some people are going to find in poor taste and you wouldn't you wouldn't draw the line anywhere essentially when it comes to, to free speech or, or you draw it just a you know libel and, and threats to kill the traditional yeah limits. yeah i do and yeah. because i think that uh, the danger that uh we face is not so much people take going to town with their terrifying freedoms and saying mean things i am much more frightened of control of free speech uh the powers that be in all uh kinds of spheres and including government, like nothing better than to have all these different exceptions so that they can exercise control. And where speech is, free speech has gone off the rails is not in democracies where people are too free to say what they want. It's in places like China when they, where they can't. That's what frightens me. It's, it's, it's authoritarianism, not libertarianism. Have you been following the, um, I think it's called the Online Harms Bill, making its way through Parliament very slowly. This is the, the government's attempt to censor, just in, not just like tweets and, and YouTube and things, but actually direct messages between people, as I understand it. Yeah, it's still a work in progress, so I don't know all the details. And it, I, I admit I was a little slow on the uptake uh, in realizing how important this is. And of course, it's being sold as a protective measure to prevent, you know, the encouragement of suicide and self-harm and, and uh, that seems all very laudable, uh, but uh, it's being written in such a way that the powers would be much broader. And yes, it's, as, as I understand it, it, it is going to be a serious threat to free speech unless it is revised. The, the sinister phrase in it, I think, is legal but harmful. So yeah. the government wants to stop these big tech companies from allowing anyone to say things that are legal but harmful. Yeah, and of course, well, harmful is, it, again, a, a subjective judgment, right? So I could say, I don't like the color of the wall behind you. I wouldn't have chosen that color. I find it a little loud. It's harming me. You know, you can say anything is harmful. Right. Whatever happened to sticks and stones, you know? Um, to, to switch to a, a different topic, uh, you've written a lot about the COVID regulations and the lockdowns and so on over the course of the last two years. Uh, how do you feel about what's been going on in Canada, also to a lesser extent New Zealand where we, and uh, Holland, actually, um, a, a couple of months ago, where you're seeing a lot of frustration now from... Uh, people and some extraordinary reactions from from the government in Canada, at least, where kind of these emergency powers are being used for the first time. Um, what's you know, what's your take on this, and where's it going to end? Well, of course, I don't know the answer to the last question. Where's it going to end? I mean, it won't surprise you that I'm very encouraged by uh, these protests and. My main question is, 
what took them so long. I mean, it's been two years of, of authoritarian overreach all across the West. And I've been shocked by the almost universal passivity uh, of, of the populations all these regulations have been imposed on. So I, I think it's, it's a sign of uh, psychic and political health that there's finally some pushback. Uh, Do you think you the response, of course, has been discouraging, and especially in Canada right now, this business of invoking emergency powers, and uh, which include the ability to seize your bank account, and also yeah. to uh, to seize or freeze uh, crowdfunding sites which have generously funded these protests. Uh, I mean, this is, well, authoritarian doesn't begin to say it. This is, this is rule by decree. And um, it's illiberal in the extreme. And I'm, and I'm afraid it's just another example of how the so-called liberals of yesterday have become the quasi-fascists of today. And I, they don't believe in freedom. They only believe in instituting freedom to say what they, what they already believe. Uh, you know, Trudeau has been very supportive of all of uh, protests uh, and even quite violent uh, arson attacks uh, when it seemed as, as if uh, there was this, uh, grave of indigenous children that had been secretly buried. And I think that that whole story has been debunked. But multiple Christian churches were, Catholic churches were burnt down. And Trudeau was very understanding about that. And he was very supportive of the farmers uh, who were protesting uh, Modi's agricultural laws. And, and they were blocking traffic and bringing uh, bringing cities to a halt, and he thought that was that was great. But when uh, it's protesters in his own country who are protesting his policies, suddenly it's unacceptable, and they're terrorists. And I think it's been really shameful the way he has tried to smear people who are clearly out to protest vaccine mandates, not even vaccines, but vaccine mandates, and he calls them Nazis and, and claims that they're all flying swastikas and Confederate flags. And okay, it's a very large uh, movement. If you look really hard on the fringes, you can find someone carrying a little a Confederate flag, but that is not the purpose of, of the protest. And uh, I mean, I read a shocking figure this morning, apparently, 57% of Canadians have, be, have successfully been convinced that these protests are not about vaccines or vac even, or vaccine, much less vaccine mandates, um, but that's just a bunch of right-wing people expressing a disgruntlement and white supremacy. And I, I, it's appalling. I agree. Do you think, we, if we, have we been bounced into lockdown uh, before Christmas, as quite a few people were hoping for. Do you think we would have seen the same kind of protests in Britain or do you think we're just too compliant? Uh, 
<laughs> I, I hate to say it, but yes, you're too compliant. No, you wouldn't have seen any protest. I, I, I have been so disappointed in this country. Um, it is a very law-abiding country. It is, it, 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 it's a culture that has a, a lot of commitment to the whole idea of rules, the British-like rules. And temperamentally and philosophically, it's one of my biggest departures from the people I live among, generally happily. Uh, I follow rules because I think they're good rules, or I follow them because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. You know, uh, I I I can behave in a fearful way as much as anyone else. But I never follow rules because they are rules. Uh, there have been a lot of bad law laws passed. Uh, it used to be illegal to be homosexual. Let's not forget that was a bad law. So there's no reason to follow laws because there are laws. But there's just a there's just a an obedient streak in the British. Have you been out on any of I the protests yourself? Have you been out in any of the lockdown protests yourself over the last year or so? Um, no, I haven't, and I admit that I'm that I'm just too lazy. Uh, but I I feel that in my journalism, I've I've done my part. I want to kick on to another subject. We've only got half an hour. Um, it's a, a totally different subject, which is vaping. Um, I saw an article from you about eight years ago in, I think it was a Guardian, uh, a pro-vaping. Back article. when they published me. <laughs> Back when they published you, yeah. And, and uh, I wondered if you, were, uh, if you were still a vapor, what your thoughts were about vaping, but also in particular, if you've been keeping abreast of what's been happening with vaping, particularly in America, because whilst here in the UK, we have government and public health agencies that are broadly speaking pretty pro-vaping, that is certainly not true in America or indeed large parts of the world. In fact, things are going backwards in terms of um, just general public's understanding of the relative risks. You know, so we had Public Health England saying that e-cigarettes are at least 95% safer than, um, than smoking. Whereas in America 10 years ago, people actually had a relatively good idea of what the risks were. They just assumed that vaping was a lot safer than smoking and they were right, even if they didn't have any evidence to hand. But now, um, I mean, the, the, the figures are, are quite shocking. Something like 65% of people in America uh, think that vaping is either as dangerous or more dangerous than, um, than, uh, than, than smoking. And that's a big rise on even you know, a few years ago. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you, well, I mean, I'll ask you a few questions. Are, are you still enjoying vaping? And uh, have you been following the politics of it? Yes, I'm still enjoying it. I'm especially grateful for the technology because um, my husband was a, a smoker since he was 19, a, a pretty heavy smoker. And, um, and it made me fear for widowhood, honestly. I don't, I want him to stick around. <laughs> and, um, and he, when he started vaping, it took him two weeks to give up tobacco and he's never had any since. And uh, that's miraculous. Uh, and so I feel that I, I may have 
one for myself, several more years of married life. And that's, that's not a small debt to a simple technology. Uh, and I, you know, I've, I spent a certain amount of time in the States and therefore I know what's been going on. It's not some kind of weird, you know, miasma of ignorance that's just infected the US population um, in their imagining that vaping is, as it, is dangerous or even more so than, than smoking tobacco. It has been a concerted campaign. And uh, I honestly think there's, a, um, there's an element of the punitive here. When vaping came along, it enraged the anti-tobacco lobby. And this is a fanatical lobby. Uh, no restriction is severe enough. You know, they try to bring in laws to keep you from smoking on your own balcony or even in your own apartment and on beaches and in the middle of the wilderness uh, where the, the, the chance of harming anyone else with passive smoke is immeasurably wee, right? So these, are, these people are completely nuts. And then along came vaping and it made it possible for smokers to no longer get all those horrible uh, health consequences that justify all this fanaticism. I mean, it's, it, it is because smoking tobacco causes cancer. And then suddenly they weren't getting cancer causing uh, toxicity and, and they were still having fun. They were still enjoying themselves. They were still having the smoking experience. And so that they could stop smoking tobacco and, and still, still have that enjoyment, the, the pleasure of, of having nicotine taken into your lungs. Because one of the things that is under advertised is that you know, nicotine is not a dangerous drug. It's, it's, it's what makes you addicted to tobacco, but it, it is not in and of itself a harmful substance. And, and the tobacco lobby just hated this <laughs> and, and went out to squelch it because you're not supposed to enjoy yourself when, you're, when you quit smoking, it's supposed to be horrible. That's right, yeah. I mean, people often ask me why, why so many countries have gone nuts about it, or so many like, public health bodies have gone nuts about it, and that's largely the answer I give. It's, it's the, I think there's a huge level of basic puritanism to it. I also think there's an element that these guys had their plan, that they were going to stamp out tobacco one bit at a time, each bit probably more painful than the last, but they would get there in the end and then achieve prohibition, and e-cigarettes and other reduced nicotine. Uh, oh, this is one of their favorite arguments. It's not an argument, actually. It's pathetic. Um, that the, the oh, we, we don't want to renormalize smoking. Well, nobody's renormalizing smoking tobacco. You know, the, the, no, the cigarette is a very different thing. I mean, this doesn't even look, look like a cigarette. And in fact, I think one of the smartest things that the vaping industry did was to stop making them look like cigarettes. You know, they're, the very early ones, you'll remember, they even made them white with, with, yeah. with orange. Uh, and were rubbish. The, the reason they changed that is because they just didn't have the fire. Well, they didn't yeah. work. They were, as you say, they were rubbish. So 
so the technology change, it, it's not the same thing. So it doesn't renormalize smoking at all. And uh, I, I just think that it, it, it was a, a technology that came along that was inconvenient for a lobby that has in itself become its own little industry. Yeah. And it upset the apple cart. And I, I, you know, there's, there's really no reason you shouldn't be able to vape on planes, for example, but you can't. Uh, when it, vaping first came in, in in the UK, you used to be able to use them in, um, in restaurants. Do you remember that? Restaurants and bars? Yeah, there were no rules in anywhere. Right. It, I'm a little curious. I haven't kept up with this, but is there any law against vaping in restaurants and bars a law or is Not this the just the establishments deciding that it upsets the customers there is there's no limit on where you can vape anywhere in the uk whatsoever it's it's purely private train companies private restaurants private cinemas just saying I, the thing that annoys me is that you get these signs saying no smoking including e-cigarettes yeah yeah i wouldn't mind so much if they said no smoking and also no vaping it's the idea that you smoke an e-cigarette which which i find annoying if you get told off okay, you can't smoke that in here sir I'm not smoking it's vaping yeah <laughs> totally different i know it's only a word but it, yeah these things matter because they are totally different well most importantly there is there is no zero evidence that uh, vaping causes uh secondary vapor uh problems that you're that you're hurting someone else Absolutely, who yeah. inhales a little bit of your vapor you do get like, people to like you do get people cloud. who pop out huge clouds of it and that can be kind of annoying if it stinks of, of black currants on usually they're the ones that actually don't include nicotine funnily enough so huh. you, can, you can inhale a huge amount and then exhale a huge amount like some kind of dragon they can be kind of anti-social i think probably those people can be dealt with without yeah i mean I, I am a little sympathetic uh, with people who don't want to smell you know pina colada yeah <laughs> well well they're eating sushi or something are you, um, are you are you aware of michael bloomberg's role in all this anti-vaping hysteria worldwide oh he's one of the culprits i mean they spent an unbelievable amount and of also bill de blasio who yeah, made it illegal but, to buy flavors at yeah. all in new york city you can only yeah. buy tobacco flavor well bloomberg himself has put in 120 million dollars worldwide just on the campaign for banning flavors let alone anything else let alone all the money he's put in for soda taxes and other e-cigarette restrictions um 120 million dollars goes a long way in, in public yeah. health advocacy and you can you can produce a lot of propaganda with that absolutely yeah it's and it's lies really scandalous yeah and it's lies that have you know led to as i say even in england you know, people's knowledge has gone backwards on e-cigarettes and funnily enough you mentioned nicotine before it's not it doesn't seem to be widely known that nicotine um is effectively safe in, insofar as it doesn't cause any diseases even if you do surveys of doctors and this has been true all around the world for a long long time most doctors think that nicotine causes cancer really so if you've got doctors who believe that you know what what hope for uh, everybody else i want to switch to one final subject because i think we're, we're close to being out of time i saw your trigonometry interview um a year or two ago and i've been on that show myself and i know at the end they ask what is it we um we're not talking about that we should talk about more and you said overpopulation which piqued my interest mm. can you elaborate oh well i'm an amateur demographer i have been most of my life it's one of my favorite subjects 
Uh, in fact, I just did. Are you a Malthusian uh, Democrat? Uh, no, I wouldn't go that far in that Malthus has been widely discredited, but I am concerned about uh, rapid population growth. And I think it's it, it exacerbates a lot of problems, um, some environmental, some social. Uh, and I just uh, reviewed a book about African demography that comes out in this week's Spectator, uh, mm. which addresses the fact that uh, African population is about to double by 2050 and is likely to be over 4 billion people by the end of the century. And that will be 40% of all the people alive in the world. Uh, and can and that, that has clear implications for Europe because I don't think that that continent has the water, if nothing else, to support 4 billion people. I mean, after all, that is, uh, that's, more than, that's more than half the people who are alive today all over the world. Yeah, but so I kind of- there, there are a lot of social, social implications that the immigration from Africa is likely to be staggering. Particularly with climate change and stuff, I guess, if, if that's all going to make things... Uh, well, that will be an accelerant. I mean, I, I do share your concerns with this. And of course, you've already mentioned kind of Malthus being debunked. And the fears about population growth have, of course, so far, always not turned out to be uh, correct. And largely that's because of improvements in technology, golden rice, GM crops, and um, improvements in farming and so on. I have no idea what population the world can sustain. I guess nobody does, but presumably there is some kind of limit and there's got to be some kind of optimal limit. Um, so I, I, I do share your, your worries with that, but I mean, what's the solution? Is there, is there one? Um, Economic development? I would advocate more provision of uh, birth control to women who, who want it. Uh, there isn't an easy solution, especially if we're going to talk about Africa. So far, uh, even increased development or urbanization has not significantly brought down the number of children that African couples want. Right. Okay, so it's not just a matter of having lots more children uh, because uh, nobody has access to condoms or something. It's uh, you know. If you ask African women uh, in Nigeria, for example, uh, how many kids they want, it's uh, between five and six. And that yeah. hasn't, has not significantly changed. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, actually. Uh, we've just assumed that uh, everyone, is, all cultures are the same and they will follow the West's lead and as, uh, countries develop, they, their birth rates are going to plummet. And it turns out that Africa's quite different. And uh, it's cultural. They want large families and are not necessarily going to change their mind if they live in a city or make a little more money. Do you think, it, I mean, you may, may well be right. Do you think it is cultural or is it just that, you know, the pace of economic growth is happened so quickly in these countries compared to you know where we were 150 years ago. It hasn't um, been that fast. 
Well, but infant mortality rates, I guess, have dropped. I mean, people say they want five. Infant mortality like... rates dropped in these countries a long time ago. A so long they, time ago. They're not saying they want five. And it, it has always been assumed that, oh, then, you know, you realize that when you have children, that they are going to live to adulthood. And, and then at least by the next generation, the culture changes and it's not happening in Africa. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I hope I don't sound ju judgmental uh, because I don't feel judgmental. If anything, I feel a little guilty that I have not had any children. And uh, if everyone were like me, then uh, we, would, we would disappear in a couple generations. So um, I haven't done my part. Uh, You've done and, and you have to, you know, the, the truth is that, that in, in some respects, Africa's getting ready to take over the world. If you are willing to raise, it's a lot of work raising children. Okay. So if, if you're willing to raise large families, generation after generation, then you rule the world. I mean, it, one of the most interesting aspects of the book I just read, uh, he mentions this in passing. But thanks to the one child policy, and even it's lifting not making much difference because the Chinese are very ambitious for their children and often just want one. Uh, China is set to go from a peak of uh, 1.5 billion to 500 million. Really? At the end of the century. It's already almost 1.5, right? And yeah. so, then it's going to start shrinking and then it's going to shrink really fast and they're going to have huge labor force problems. Yep. They're going to have a huge elderly uh, cohort, much larger, even larger than in the West. Uh, that's what's going to check Chinese power is demographics. Now, can you, you understand why I'm so interested in this field? It's, Absolutely. It's, well, it's a very interesting. Great. Thing. It explains practically everything. Well, I will look forward to reading your review in the Spectator this week. That's all. It we've takes got. a lot less time to read my review than to read the. I may well read the book, book if, <laughs> if you lure me in with your, your review. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you for, for much longer, but it's only a half hour show. Thanks very much uh, for sparing your time. Thank you very much for watching at home. You know the drill. If you want to give us any money, uh, yeah, you are more than welcome to ia.org.uk slash donate. And if you want to give money to our digital stuff like this, it's patreon.com slash IA London. I will be back with another guest in a couple of weeks time for another half hour chat. Thank you and goodbye.